we are continuing our third week looking at that verse. We're going to narrow our focus in this morning on part three of our series to the breaking of bread. You may have uh, seen on the cover of your worship folder that title of this morning's service or this message is devoted to breaking bread uh, about living life together, a practical life together as a body and uh, a shared worship experience, a shared spiritual life will be the aim of what I look at this morning in the text. So it'll be a morning where we focus a lot in on the Lord's uh, Supper that we've already taken together. So uh, first what we'll do is we will read the text, then we will pray, and then we will unfold the scripture this morning. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Father, as we uncover this text this morning, we need your grace to give us a clarity of thought and of understanding. We are dependent this morning upon your grace to apply the text to our lives. We need grace to live according to the word that we received this morning. We ask Jesus that you would enable us by your grace. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, our text this morning, and for the last three weeks, is probably artificially headlined in your Bible as the Fellowship of Believers. And that is really the aim of all uh, four of the messages that I'm bringing uh, from this text is about the Fellowship of Believers. And so this morning, as we narrow in on the breaking of bread the idea that we'll look at is that the breaking of bread in fellowship with Christ as Christ people is that it is, as we talked about last week, the koinonia, the fellowship that is about a shared life, practically, and a shared worship experience. So before we look at the breaking of bread specifically, I want to give us some context. To those who have been here the last three weeks, you may think, oh my goodness, is he going to preach the last two weeks sermon over again? Um, the answer to that is no, and yes. Um, the answer to that is no, no, in that there, it will be fresh as we focus in on the breaking of bread, but also it is understood this, that the key to learning is repetition. If you want to put it another way, repetition is the key to learning. Right? So we need to hear these things again and again and again to get us, get it ingrained in us. So this morning I'm going to begin by reminding us of the things that we have covered in the past two Sundays. So of course, overall, we know that this passage is about the life of a Christian lived in community with other Christians. Uh, those who have been born of the Spirit and reconciled to God through Jesus' atoning death for their sin and God's resurrection of Jesus, they live in community with other individuals who have been united to Christ by grace. This new life has enabled and empowered them to live by God's saving grace. The life that the born again live, remember, is a witness to the truth of Jesus Christ as it has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Scriptures. So, by the Spirit's power and God's enabling grace, the Christian is born again to, this is the overall theme as we look at verse 42, is about devotion, right? It is a new devotion. 
Those who have been born of the Spirit are devoted to new things. They're devoted to things that were impossible for them to be devoted to before God's saving grace came to them. They are now devoted to these new things, right? So it's about devotion. And devotion is what we saw uh, in the first week that uh, the Greek word for devotion is to be, or as it's put in other uh, versions, not the ESV, but other versions might say continued, steadfastly. Other versions might say committed to. This idea of devotion continued steadfastly. The idea of commitment is a Greek word proskiterio, which is, was defined as this, to attend to all of the exercises, the fa faculties, and the human energy, to attend to all of that constantly and diligently toward this one thing. This is devotion. It is to use every ounce of what you have been given to this one end, and it is devotion. It is devotion to the fellowship of believers as you have been united in Christ. It's devotion to Christ, but devotion uh, together as a community to these things. So the first point of constant, diligent, instantaneous attendance in the life of the Christian and the life of the community of believers, the church, is a devotion to the truth. That's what we saw in the first week, that they are devoted to the apostles' doctrine. They are devoted to understanding the truth about Jesus. And we kind of backed up and went to chapter 1 to see that Jesus said that you will be witnesses to me. That is, you will Tell the truth about me. And so as these uh, newly formed community of believers were focused in on understanding the truth about Jesus, which would be understanding what the apostles had been teaching about the scriptures and how they all pointed to Jesus' death and resurrection, right? They're devoted to this, to the truth, right? Committed to it, committed to understanding it, committed to communicating it. And then they were committed to also being a witness to the truth of concerning Jesus and the gospel uh, by this constant devotion to their brothers and sisters in the church. The church's commitment to understanding the truth and devotion to the truth steadfastly. They were using their energy to communicate that truth. And these individual Christians, people born of the Spirit, people devoted to the truth, united in Christ, when they gather, they do so in a visible way. In a, in a way in which they are telling the testimony of the truth of Jesus Christ's atoning death and resurrection by their gathering together, by their unity. That they are attesting to the truth. That is what we do when we gather. As a, We are attesting. Is that what we're doing right here? Is that why we're gathered in fellowship this morning? Is that we are attesting to the truth of Jesus' saving work. We are attesting to it without maybe a voice. We are attesting to it by our uh, koinonia, our fellowship uh, with one another. Our energy is applied to understanding the truth of the gospel, but not only that, not only is it concerned with communicating the truth with, the, with our words, but as we engage in community, we testify to the truth uh, through our united relationship with each other. That is that the spirit-born believer in Jesus Christ has been born again to this proskiterio, an instantaneous and constant attending to the apostles' doctrine, to the truth, and an instantaneous and constant koinonia, defined as to partake of, participate with, partner in, and distribute the grace of God in Christ Jesus with others who have been united to Christ. So it is about us to partake of grace as we gather. 
in fellowship with one another. We are partakers of grace. We participate in God's grace in Jesus, and we distribute the grace of God in Christ Jesus with each other. That is the, the fullest way I can try to understand what fellowship really is. It's about those who have partnered with God's grace and participated and par partaken of it and then distributing it with one another as a witness to the truth. Do you believe what you believe, right? Do you, do you really believe what you say you believe? Well, then it looks like something, doesn't it? I mean, if you say one thing that you believe something, it looks like something. It looks like fellowship with other believers. It is a witness to attest to the testimony that you say with your mouth. There's a testimony in life and how we live. So this koinonia, this fellowship, this gathering, this coming together, remember from last week was, it was the pattern of daily living for the forgiven in Christ. Sharing life with each other was just part of who they had become. And we remember the end goals of gathering, the shared life that we saw last week was a stirring up each other to love and good deeds, as Hebrews 10, 24 said, right? As we gather together, we stir one another up to love and good deeds. And then Ephesians 4 gives us a pretty clear uh, statement here. And if you want to turn there, uh, turn to Ephesians 4, and we will look at verses uh, 12 through 16 to give us a little bit uh, of an undergirding of what it is that the community, uh, the body, does together, uh, what its aim is, what the end goal of our gathering should be. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning verse 12. So, in 11, it talks about the teachers and the shepherds who come for the purpose of verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain, attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there's this shared life that the early church was concerned with. And it was certainly concerned with practical Needs, But more than that, the church shared a responsibility to present one another mature in Christ Jesus at His coming. A shared life meant also, as we saw in Ephesians, a shared workload, is that when each one is doing its part, right, the body builds itself up in love when it's working properly. So it's a shared workload, certainly in a practical sense, but that it is that the shared purpose of the church is done together in community. A shared life was concerned with our brothers and sisters' progress in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus, but as much as, or, or even as more sometimes than their own, right? Is that, we are, are we in it, as I've said in previous messages a long time ago, are we in it for the other person to win it? That is, are, are we in community together that the brother or sister sitting across the aisle would grow, would mature? Am I there for them? 
Are they there for me, right? Not only am I in it for myself, but I'm in it for the community. I'm in it for the whole body to succeed and to grow in Christ and to grow in the knowledge of Jesus and, and to grow in that. And as Romans teaches us, right, as we saw last week, they were, they were concerned with outdoing one another and showing honor. Everyone in the community of faith had a deep concern for the growth of others that as one grew, so did the body. As one grows, so does the whole body. This was and is the testimony of the reality of the gospel, isn't it? This is a testimony to the reality that, that the gospel is, is true. It's the reality of Jesus' atoning death for sinners, the reality of the truth that the church proclaims. The shared life is a testimony to the unity of the church of Jesus Christ and his self-giving love on the cross, isn't it? The unity that we experience in church is a testimony to the truth that Jesus gave his life. Jesus gave his life in love on a cross for sinners. That is our testimony. And our testimony is done when we give our lives for one another, right? We give our lives for one another in a community of faith. When the early church gathered, as we see from our text, right, that we are looking this morning at the breaking of bread. Well, as, as this as this goes, uh, there was, as when the early church gathered, a what they called a common meal, the breaking of bread. They shared in practical human needs with one another. But Luke here, when he speaks of the breaking of bread, he also has in mind the Lord's Supper. There was often the shared life of having a shared meal, but it was, it was followed with a shared communion a shared Lord's Supper that was separate from the meal that you might eat, but it was to focus in and remember Jesus, to remember his atoning death for them, that that was what united them. So Luke has in mind here a, a shared meal. He, he has in mind the Lord's Supper. He, it's a practical meal. It was linked to that, but it is about this meal of remembrance, of communion, of the Lord's Supper. When Luke speaks of the breaking of bread, he has in mind of more than a shared meal, more than a shared need. He has in mind this, a shared worship experience. As we come to the Lord's table, it is a shared worship experience. It is a shared spiritual life, isn't it? As we come and we bring our sin before the Lord, and we come to, to partake of the table, and we understand that we are completely forgiven, that His death was a once and for all sacrifice. And we come to this table, and each one of us is sharing in that very same experience. We are sharing in that together. It is a spiritual life shared together in community. We have a shared concern for what when we come to the table? I hope that we do. I hope that we have a shared concern for holiness. We have a shared concern for holiness. That as we come to the table, we think of holiness. We go and understand that God is holy. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He is the thrice holy God. And we come to that table understanding our forgiveness was a once and for all sacrifice paid by Jesus. But we also understand that we ought not to be complacent about our own personal holiness. That is, we come to the table and confess our sin, 
We are trying, we are aiming at this. We are coming to the table saying, Lord, I need your grace to eradicate the residual sin of my heart. What's left over? Rid that of me, Lord. And then we do that in community, right? And so each one of us has this same shared spiritual worship experience when we come to the table. And first I want to look at one thing is that as we think about the breaking of bread, as we think about the Lord's table, the first thing, of course, is it is always meant to be done communally. It is meant to be done as a community. The Lord's Supper is not a meal where I merely celebrate what Jesus has done for me. I do celebrate that every time I come. Every time I come to the table, I celebrate what Jesus has done for me because I know just how far off I was from Him before the Spirit got a hold of me and saved me. I know how far off I was, and I come to that table knowing that, that it was a, uh, a completed sacrifice for me, and I am sitting there in amazement about Jesus' grace toward me. But yes, it is not merely where I come to the table or where you come to the table and say, ah, what an amazing God and what Jesus has done for me. It is a communal meal where the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, especially as we think about this particular body at Spring Hill, we come together, we give thanks for what Jesus did for us. And then we say this, we are a new family. We are a new family that was formed by the Spirit, and purchased by Christ's brokenness for our sins. It is first meant to be communal. These guys who shared in the, in the first Lord's Supper with Him on the night before He was betrayed, they did not go home and take this meal at home with their friends and their family and their neighbors. They took it together in the community of believers that were there, right? They were present with one another. It was a shared communal meal. And Paul understood this as we think about what Paul talks about in Corinthians. Paul understood that the Lord's Supper was communal and that it was to be a shared worship experience. Five times in Paul's instruction and correction uh, to the church on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he says this phrase, when you come together, when you come together, He's giving them instructions as they have not done this well, right, in many cases. And then he tells them what to do when they do do it. When you come together. So there's an assumption, right, that, that the, this meal was to be taken when? When you come together. When you come together as a body. The Greek word for come together, this phrase is synergia. It is where we get the word synergy that we use. The total is greater than the sum of its parts, right? So when we think about that, when we come together, the benefits to the community are greater than the sum of the individual benefit that we receive from Christ's death. That is what this come together means. It is a synergy. It is that when we come together as a body, the benefit that that body gets is greater than the sum of John, Caleb, plus Jeff's benefit. It's greater. The total is greater than the sum of its parts. 
So when we come together, we are to remember the forgiveness of the Lord. And as we remember the forgiveness of the Lord in, in fellowship, in koinonia, in a community, we understand this, that it is a catalyst for the unity of the church. Right? It is, it is a thing that, that, that moves us forward in unity. Because we are sharing in a shared worship experience. Not only are we sharing life together, but we're sharing in a worship experience together, in a spiritual experience together. And that is a catalyst for us that, that drives us to even more unity with one another. Right? It is aimed to do that. Secondly, the breaking of bread is symbolic. When we look at Luke twenty two nineteen. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus broke the bread, he was signifying something. It was symbolic, signifying that his body would be broken in death. He would surrender his life for the sake of their salvation. He was communicating this by taking the bread and breaking it, saying, This is is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to be broken for you. He was aiming at, at, at showing them this in a symbolic way. It was a way to, for them to appropriate that into their lives, right? His body would then become the, quote-unquote, food that would sustain them in life. The idea here is that they must eat the bread to live. In other words... They were to find their life in his death by believing in what Jesus would do on their behalf, right? And as we try to define our lives, what, what is our life uh, defined by? It is defined by this, his body broken for my sin. That I need to partake of that by believing, by participating in his body broken. That his body broken is my food to live by. It is that which I must be nourished by. How often do we forget that, our, that his body was broken for us? I mean, how often? In, in, in just one day. In just one day in our lives, how often do we uh, get mired in self-pity or get mired in, in our sins and our mistakes and think there's no way forward? I'm never going to not do this anymore. I'm always going to be like this. We often forget his body was broken for me. I need to believe. I need to trust that his body was broken for me, right? And then we do that together in community. So to the disciples, Jesus was saying in this breaking of bread, if you do not participate in my death by eating, quote unquote, meaning believing, you will not benefit from the death I am about to die for you. And for us, if you do not uh, participate in Jesus' death, that is, as we looked at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, that we proclaim His death until He comes. We are participating in the death of Jesus when we come to the table. We are, we are proclaiming that He died for our sin and for the community's sin. We will not benefit from that death unless we believe. You cannot benefit from the death of Christ just by knowing the death of Christ. You have to believe. You have to participate in it. You have to partake of it. So we can sit here in church for years and years and years upon end, 
And I could stand out in the entryway with you after church and ask you to tell me what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, and you could probably communicate it to me very clearly. But if you don't participate in it, you don't believe in it, there's no benefit of Christ's death for you. If you don't believe it, participate in it, partake of it, there's no benefit for Christ's death for you. And you might be able to communicate the gospel more clearly than me. But yet... You haven't participated in it. You haven't partaken of it. You haven't eaten of his death by believing. So next, as we look at this breaking of bread, as the church comes together to break bread and they come to celebrate the Lord's meal, it is, of course, a meal of remembrance, right? Because Jesus says, as often as you do this, you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And what is it that we remember? It is for us to recall this. It is for us to recall how Jesus rescues His people from the slavery of sin. We were in bondage. We were in bondage to sin. As uh, my friend and I have spoken about this idea of free will. To choose God, we couldn't choose Him. We were in bondage. We were enslaved to sin. And we think about the Lord's Supper and we think about this breaking of bread. It is that that is the means by which Jesus frees us from the bondage and slavery of sin that we might believe. Right? It is Him who does the work. It is our response to His work, right? As we talked about that this morning, as we talk about the Word of God, that the Word of God speaks and we respond. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. And our response is to repent and believe. It is Jesus who works. It is us who respond in repentance and faith. When the church comes to the table of the Lord, we're not just remembering an event in the past, though. As we look at that, we can come to the table often and just remember that Christ died for my sin in the past. That he, and that is indeed true, right? He, he died in the past, for my past sin, but it, it can have no impact on the here and now. It is not meant to not have an impact on today, on the here and now. As the church remembers how Christ rescued the church from her sins, the church remembers this at the same time, that she has been liberated. She has been enabled and empowered by God's grace to love and to obey Him. As we go to the table, we are, we are not just remembering the past. We're not just going back and remembering. We are remembering that, that Jesus indeed died for sinners once and for all. We are remembering that, but not just staying there. We are saying this, that as we go and remember that this purchase of God, that it really purchased us, that it has liberated us. It has set us free to do what we could not do before. It has set us free and it has enabled us and empowered us by the Holy Spirit of God that dwells in us and by God's grace that we now can do something we couldn't before, which was what? To love God and to obey Him. That is what we remember when we come to the table, that we can now do this, which we could not do before. And the whole point of the Lord's Supper, ultimately, is this, the forgiveness of sins, isn't it? 
the forgiveness of sins for each individual Christian and for the uh, collective corporate body. The forgiven in Christ coming together to remember God's rescue from sin and the forgiveness we have in Jesus' atoning death. And the atonement of Jesus Christ is in full view here, right? It is how Jesus rescues sinners, His people chosen by grace. Jesus' death accomplished forgiveness for His people, rescued them from judgment and His blood spares those who trust in Him from the punishment that God will inflict in the future on the ungodly. When we come to that table, we, we're not looking just backwards, but we're also looking forward as well. And this, this coming together, this breaking of bread, this Lord's Supper, is also a covenantal meal, isn't it? It is, it is the meal that is served in the community of faith, but it is upon invitation from the Lord Himself. The table is for those who are quickened by the Spirit because of God's mercy and through His grace to repent and believe. The breaking of bread, the communion, the Lord's Supper evokes in us the truth of the promise of Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, remembers and appropriates the fulfillment of God's promises for a definitive and final forgiveness of sins. You see, what we celebrate is that this is the superior sacrifice. This is the superior sacrifice of all the sacrifices we read about in the Bible. This is the superior sacrifice. This is the completed, uh, the completion of God's promises. Right? This is the new covenant, a greater covenant. It is the superior sacrifice that we read about in Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, 18. You can read that on your own. Now, as we go to the table... We remember Jesus' death and we remember the future promises of God as well. We look forward to the joy, don't we, that we will experience in the kingdom of God. The Lord's Supper anticipates the day. It anticipates the day when our joy will be made complete. Jesus' past sacrifice is the means by which the great promise of the future is secured for us. The reason why we go and remember, we go and remember because this is what points us to the future promise. This is what makes us assured of the great promises of the future. That God promised He would send a son. God promised that He would send one to die for sins once and for all, and He did so. And that gives us hope in the future promises of God, right? It is that which secures those promises. It is that which when we appropriate Jesus' death for our sin, we know that going forward, God's promises are true. God will make good on every promise He's ever made because He made good on His promise through Jesus already for us. Listen to the words of Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage 
of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. To be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb is all of grace. To be invited to break bread at the table of the Lord is all of grace. As we come together unified with Christ, we share our lives together practically, and we share our lives in worship. Let us give the Lord's Supper its worth. Let us look back on the forgiveness of sins and the rescue mission of Christ and His atoning death with an eye for the future. As we look at Titus chapter 2, what does it say to us in Titus chapter 2 about those who have a blessed hope for the future? Look at Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training, to, uh, uh, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we come to the table, let us remember that we are invited and called worthy by grace. Let us remember that forgiveness is found in Christ alone. Let us come to the table in faith, knowing that by faith we are nourished with the benefits Christ obtained by His death. And thus, each time we come to the table, guess what happens? We continue to grow in grace. Each time we come to the table in a worthy fashion, we continue to grow in God's grace. Let us appropriate the enabling power of the gospel in the present as we break bread together. Let us come together when we come to the table and remember the benefits to the church at Spring Hill, that they are greater than the sum of our individual benefit that we get in Christ. Let us remember that God's past grace is doing something in us. What is God's past grace doing in us as we appropriate this and we have our hope for the future? Well, as Titus says, it is training us. Then we come to the table where it's a, table, it's a training table as well. It's training us as we put our hope in Christ and in the future of God's promises. That we will one day, if we persevere, be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That we will be invited to the table. Blessed are those who are invited to the table. As we come to the table each time together on the Lord's Day, we are growing in grace. We are to be growing in grace. And how do we do so? It is also that we are growing in holiness. It is that we are renouncing ungodliness. We are renouncing worldly passions. We are separating ourselves unto God. Right? It's a separate community. We're separate from the worldly passions. Separate from the unrighteousness. We are coming to the table to appropriate that. Right? With a, with a, a look to the future hope of Jesus' return. Let us devote ourselves as a community of faith as those who are united uh, as a church to an instantaneous and constant attending to a life that is self-controlled, upright, and godly in the present age. That's what Titus says. Upright and godly in the present age. What would we accomplish 
if we live that out, an upright, godly life in the present age, well, it accomplishes what we set out to accomplish in the beginning. And that is to be a testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Right? If we live upright, godly lives in the present age, it is a testimony to the truth of the saving power of Jesus in our lives and how we have truly believed and are living the gospel. Let us attend to a life that is self-controlled, upright, and godly now as a testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ. Well, let us take a moment as we reflect on God's word. Let us take a moment of silence. Take this moment and let the word of God have its full effect. Uh, let us ask the Lord to remove those things that were not of him this morning. So let us just take a moment of silence to do that. Lord, we ask that you would have your way in us. We ask for your enabling power to walk in the truth of the scripture this morning. That we be a community united in Christ. That we come to the table honestly. That, Lord, we would grow in grace. That you would enable us to live upright and godly lives in this age as a testimony to the truth of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.